Welcome to the SMB Community Podcast with your hosts, Amy Babinchak, James Kernan, and Carl Polichuk. Produced by and for the Small Biz Thoughts community. We're dedicated to making every IT professional a successful IT professional. Did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospect calls, building an entire Lego Death Star, or most of the content put out by Carl Polichuk in a week. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting automation. Automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicating to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at gozynta.com. Well, welcome to the SMB Community Podcast. Today, my guest is Ben Yarborough with Calyptics. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate the invitation and the chance to reconnect. I'm excited to have you here today because uh, you guys came out with something new that really piqued my interest because it's a community-based security tool that you've added to your firewall. And I think that is such an interesting concept and maybe a bit of a new direction for firewalls. And um, so I'm really, really interested to hear your take on all of that. Um, so, but let's have you introduce yourself and tell folks who you are first. So it all started back in about uh, 2004. Um, I'm a lawyer and I met a uh, professor at UNC Charlotte and he was a cryptographer and he had brought to the US a, a student, Lawrence Teo, who's a PhD student and I met those guys uh, in the world of sort of startup land and uh, got to know Lawrence and his thesis about building an information sharing security solution. And so, you know, I figured I would try to help him out and get his business going. And, and so we started back in 2005, acquiring the technology from UNC Charlotte that he sort of developed conceptually. And we've been working ever since to bring it to fruition. And we're very fortunate to connect with many members of the small business server community that shared their needs. And we found a home there to build a firewall to help that community uh, and use it as our incubation environment to build and implement Lawrence's vision of an information sharing platform to protect small businesses. And so we, that's where we started. So uh, it's great to reconnect and sort of come full circle 15 I, years. Yeah, I, I, I remember your start because I met you guys literally in the lobby of a hotel when pretty much you were scribbling things down on the back of the napkin, telling me what it is that you wanted to do for the small, small uh, business marketplace, which is, which is my area and my, my passion. And, you know, I was really into ISIS server at that time. And, um, it, you know, ever since then, we've been using, you, you didn't have a firewall yet. No, when we, we, when we were we on met. discovery. You had, you had the concept of a firewall. And uh, I, you know, I, but I immediately saw your vision and, and got behind it. And so um, it's been really great to watch you guys grow over the years. And you've been my go-to firewall from kind of from about that point forward. And uh, I just, 
I just have loved everything you do. And, you know, the concept that really grabbed me was that you were building something purpose-built for the small business market space and that it was the direct result of a PhD thesis. I just thought those two things coming together for small businesses was going to be a, a guaranteed winner. Well, I appreciate that. It's uh, we found a home in the, in the small business space and, and really a purpose there an understanding of the challenges that the IT professionals face in the space, uh, whether it's limited dollars, limited understanding, lack of straight answers, you know, and building what we've been working on, we've had to create a real trust relationship based on the notion that we don't have all the answers, but we'll do our damnedest to figure it out and be as transparent as we can be. And, and so uh, that has allowed us to survive a, a great recession. It allows us to grow and, and really fund what I think is more of been a, you know, I hate to say this publicly, but a, a grand R&D journey. And, you know, to build and evolve a solution that Lawrence saw the need for. And it's, uh, we've had our challenges, and we, but we've had good people give us guidance. And we really appreciate that. Well, I just see that um, you respected small businesses in the same way that I did, right? There's been a problem in the way that firewalls were designed, the way that firewalls were marketed, that it was very much focused on the enterprise level and then kind of a, oh yeah, we also make something for small business and all we did was strip out some of the features and here you go. And that, I, I think that, that's was just, right. that, was, that was like a crime to me. And, so. and, and I'll, I'll comment on that. I think one of the things that we see over and over again is that user error, un, in, unintentional error, or the challenges of maintaining an enterprise solution in a small business environment creates a huge risk of, of error or mistake. And while the flexibility is great in some environments, it creates challenges and oftentimes misconfigurations are one of the biggest threats to security. Yeah, the other big threat to security is the whole set it and forget it scenario. That always drives me crazy too, because this is a moving targets that we're after. And if you just plug something in and away you go, you set it, you forget it. Uh, you know, you, you can't do that when the target is moving. So one of the, one of the features of your firewall that I think is going to tie into this, our conversation, which is ultimately going to be about your new community shield, which I love the concept, um, was we used, we, we would deploy these snort rules that you had embedded in. So we could subscribe to snort and then those, those would come into the firewall and they would protect us against zero day exploits That's coming right. out for, and also um, patches, right? Things, right. That, things that were unpatched in the environment, you know, that we hadn't gotten to yet because, you know, there's always that delay from the time a patch comes out to where it's fully deployed. And you guys had that solution baked into your product for years ago, yep. which was really a, a community-based effort. 
and now you've come out with your community shield. So I see this as kind of an evolution of what you've been doing from the beginning. I think that's right. I think from the inception, you know, many people perceive the firewall as just like building the, the roads and, and highways in and out and left and right. And, and you create that conduit and, and you ignore it. You're done. Yeah. That, poke a hole. I yeah. too many people are just like, yeah, I just need to poke a couple of holes. And it's like, oh, you, you, you poor and, thing. You need to do a lot more than that. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And the, and the rate, what's happening is the rate of need for that dynamic change in these systems is only accelerated, right? And, and then it's what kind of changes can be effective. And, you know, the, the most important changes, obviously, are the maintenance, the updates and patches and just maintaining integrity of systems. And that's a core component of good cyber hygiene and security. And then the other is, is the tools that you can add to to provide that preventative protection, like the SNORT rules, like Microsoft has a uh, advanced protection program where they work with the, the intrusion prevention rule writers to, to prepare the rules concurrently with the release of the patches so that if people don't get around, then they've got the SNORT rule. And, and a lot of that happens under the hood and it blocks traffic that's trying to you know, execute exploits towards those vulnerabilities. And it's a stopgap measure, but we're moving increasingly to a world where infrastructure is used by bad people to try to take advantage of small business. And it's, it's quite simple that you know, you, we can identify that infrastructure when somebody attempts to log into one of your sites or your customer sites from a cloud service provider that we've never seen before across any of our environments. They fail repeatedly. Oh, by the way, it's coming from an international source or from a known, shall we say, less trustworthy cloud provider. Well, that infrastructure, we can block that everywhere else and even at that site to get the benefit. So, so it raises the cost of the adversary using that infrastructure. And that's really this inception from theory to implementation. What are we doing is we're identifying that bad infrastructure, whether it's directly owned by somebody, if it's leased by somebody, or if it's a temporarily compromised environment that's being used to, to target somebody. And we're now going to block it at that IP level. And so if you've got exposed systems or even our system, uh, we can just stop that at the network level. And I was looking at it, we rolled out a, uh, an RDP probe feed just a few days ago. And you know, folks that have uh, some ports still open and, and they're trying to lock them down and do implement different things, but, but we can identify that infrastructure that's being used to target RDP and block it everywhere, not just for RDP, but everything. Because the same infrastructure that's used to try to target your RDP system may be used to target somebody's FTP system or somebody else's, you know, telnet that's exposed or, or VMware access panel that's exposed. So it's, it's really about using the, the data, the threat data that we can get from the community and turn that back into protection for them. And so it's... A 
opt-in thing or is just happening by default? It's, so the initial implementation after sort of we saw what's happened sort of in, over this year with the vulnerabilities, whether or not it was the exchange exploit or the Kaseya or all these different things and the rate at which we just accelerated the implementation. So we'd all, we'd been since 2014, I think it was, had threat feeds in the box because we were designed for that, but we didn't really expose them. And so with the community shield, we knew we had the data. So we added these new field, new feeds and exposed it. So we turned it on by default. We, we figured more security by default is better. Uh, and so by and large, it's been a, a huge success in terms of the traffic it's stopping. We have had some learning experiences where uh, somebody activated a feature that we took in as bad into you know intel for badness but it was a mistake and so we you know we quickly uh restored that now i'll tell you the partner was uh very obviously very frustrated on the front end as he should be but he you know he worked with our support team and dev team we fixed it and we now know how we curate these feeds we learned how we can curate those feeds better uh and have higher quality confidence in them and there are other paths to, to grow that confidence, you know, um, because it's all about shifting towards, you know, reduced attack surface, reduced exposure and implementing that biggest bang for the lowest dollar. Right. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll be adding configuration variability for folks. And we are working on, you know, uh, management, uh, capabilities to, to remediate uh, at, a, at a partner level uh, and all that's been we've been working on it for years but we just wanted we wanted to get the protection out and there's no 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 time like the present and you know in 24 hours we had you know two million rdp probes at every i mean across all our fleet i mean the amount of activity there was, was enormous and so i just i think uh you know, we take the right approach uh, and have the right engagement with our partners, I think we can deliver a lot. So. Yeah, well, you know, I've been involved with ransomware prevention for a long time, since 2013 at this point. And um, those are, RDP is, was the first way that they intruded with ransomware and it continues to be the most common way. Yep. It's kind of ridiculous. Like this is a problem that IT professionals should have solved a long time ago. But what I love what you're doing is your firewall <clears throat> is providing service, right? This is a this is something that should be happening on the professional services level, but wasn't, and maybe not in all cases. You know, a lot of small business they don't have IT support, or they have a limited amount of IT support. You know, all the MSPs in the world, um, you know, they'll, they will tell you, I mean, my own included, you know, we're here to be your IT department. We're going to do everything you need. The reality of it is they've only purchased a slice of our time. Yep. Not, we're not there every single day doing every, you know, as much as, as much as internal, if you, that was your one job was to protect that one business. That speaks to the, one of the major differences between enterprise and small business, right? Uh, enterprise has 24-7, 365 staff, a SOC, a NOC, 
and they need the infrastructure and the systems to really keep those guys busy and let them do their job, right? But you know you what? Can, they still get hit. I mean, who's oh, in the news do. every day? Right? <laughs> well, the mountain of hay that they have to digest is is quite large. Yeah. And yeah, and, yeah. and I do think the hay is intentionally inflated to hide the needle, but that's another day. <laughs> but, but the SMB space, you know, they, they you our clients cannot afford manual automated, a manual monitoring in 24 by seven. That's just not realistically in the cards. I mean, I was talking to a, uh, an MSSP, we looked at different options and, you know, their minimal clients, a hundred thousand dollars a year to do, you know, extended EDR or MDR or whatever the latest buzzword is, you know, the, the yeah, the you're going to pay someone monitor. to sit there all day and monitor your firewall. Yeah. You can yep. automate some of that, but the automation is only going to take you just so far. That's At right. some point you have to have, you have to have the, the services component to actually, to actually make it happen. Right. And if you when, can aggregate that across the community, that seems like it's a very powerful solution. So my undergrad was economics. And uh, when I saw Lawrence's thesis and the way he wanted to share the information, to me, that was, that, that's really sharing the cost of cybersecurity. And if as a community, we can create a platform to share the cost, and the cost is not money, the cost is our time and effort and expertise. Mm -hmm. And the challenge in the marketplace is there's not enough experts and there's not enough time. So if we don't collaborate with those limited resources, we'll never get there. Yeah. So if we can share that constructively, I think it as a utility service, we drive the cost and the price down for each of us individually. The value is considerably greater as a result. And that's the war that needs to be fought for cyber is an economic war at the forefront. Right. And economics isn't, isn't always about, about dollars directly. This is something that you and I have exactly in common because I'm sure you don't know this, but my undergraduate degree is in public affairs, which is government essentially. But I fell in love with economics. And although I didn't get the degree in economics, I literally took every single course that Michigan State offered in economics from 100 to 900 and some. I took it all the way, all the way through. Because I just, to me, it was critical to everything that we did in policy. Which, so I had a dual major in um, natural resources, policy, and economics. And um, the, way, the way you make decisions, and I think I carried this forward into my, my business in IT, as it turned out, that the way you carry that information forward informs how, you, how that business is able to operate and how they're able to succeed. Right. If they right. if they, they have this kind of technology behind them, it serves to push their business forward. And you know, getting getting ransomware, I talked to a lot of guys, they're like, Yeah, yeah, you know, my client got ransomware, but you know, we had them back up and running within six hours or twelve hours or a week or you know, whatever it was. And I don't think there's a lot of them grasping really 
what that cost actually is, because it's not just a cost of, well, we didn't, you know, we lost out on $10,000 an hour that our company would have made, but we also, they also lost confidence, right? And they're going to, yeah. they're going to, they are going to have that in the back of their mind as to, you know, how vulnerable they might be. And when they're making their future decisions of what they're going to do with their business, they're going to have that in their head. And that sets people back more than just the dollars. No, I think it creates, uh, there's an emotional cost, right? Mm-hmm. Just to your livelihood, there's a, then that translates into a behavioral cost, which is you're creating for a small business, an unknown risk with unknown order of magnitude, with inability to recover. And so it changes an investment and behavioral paradigm for that small business that is really hard to put your finger on, but it's, it is real. And, and if you talk to business owners, they, you know, they want to make decisions where there's a degree of certainty that they have. They can calculate the investment of time, effort, and money and understand the potential results, both positive and negative. And when that's an absolute unknown, which may result in a complete loss, it has a huge impact. Yeah. And it's just hard to quantify that uh, that's the challenge of, of cybersecurity and, and IT security is, is that world of unknowns. Yeah. So, so we talked about the advantage of the aggregating the learning across the community and, and applying that to the firewalls. And I think that's a fantastic innovation. My other big concern with firewalls, and I'd like you to kind of tell me where the, what Calyptics is thinking and what the industry in general maybe is thinking is that um, COVID had really, has really accelerated the distribution of work, right? Where people are, people are not, they're not in the castle behind the moat. They're not in the walled garden, whatever analogy it is you want to picture. They're more fluid now, right? The applications and servers are not all housed in their office. They're out on the internet, which means essentially they're always remote to their own data. Um, And they might, you know, they might be working from home. They might be they might be working from elsewhere. Maybe they snuck off to the beaches of Jamaica or something, and now they're logging in. And um, I, firewalls still have a very important role to play, but that role is really fluid and changing so fast. I think it is very much so. I think the uh, for us, um, you know, we see the firewall as a continued evolving tool to allow the right person on the right device access to the right resource or data, regardless of where it resides. And, and that really, the, the latest uh, buzzword, which I get a little frustrated with the marketing is the zero trust concept, and it can be quite confusing. Mm-hmm. But the uh, NIST has put out a recent uh, a thought, what I think is a leading authoritative resource and it's 800-207, and it's on a zero trust architecture. And uh, the federal government is really pushing towards that. 
And when you break the pieces apart of what zero trust is about, it goes back to authenticating a user, determining their authority or permissions. Ideally, if you can figure out what, if they're on a, a registered device, then what resource are they trying to get to? Let them get to that resource and only that resource for a limited you know, session or duration. And, and we, several years ago, looked at the challenge with uh, VPNs and, and RDP and the team built what we call Gatekeeper, which, which is essentially a network level dynamic port forwarding rule that maps to the zero trust at a network level. And so when you, when you start to break apart the zero trust, there's a role for an identity access service, a device inventory service, an access proxy, an access controller, uh, there are all these different pieces that kind of fit together and you're end up flipping the role of the firewall in my mind, or at least in what we're doing to, instead of just poking holes and allowing stuff in and out, you're really creating micro instantaneous access control or segmentation. And it's, it's like, it can be overwhelming to put it all together, but if you think about it, with, with Gatekeeper, you can create behind the ac our access enforcer firewall an instance of a device, virtual or physical, that you can create a single session, two-factor authenticated connection to a gateway that then allows you to proceed forward. So now nobody can see that endpoint. You can get to that endpoint and then define internal rules, you know, what that... Uh, workstation. So you can essentially create a bastion host or, or jump station, whether it's for a user or whether it's for an administrator. So sort of back up, the, the firewall becomes really much more key in the architectural environment of protecting the asset, which is the data. And so we met a gentleman named Dave Pescatori, who's been in networking about 40 years. So if you do the math on that, it's like long before the internet, right? And that's, after we that's left- like pre-network time yeah, networking. Yeah, yeah, So he was like <laughs> yeah. and other play, but he, uh, Dave's like, yeah, this security thing, we got it all wrong. And Lawrence and I had a chance to meet him, I think about 2010, I can't remember when, but he said, we got security all wrong. You're supposed to protect the asset. Right. And so- you know, uh, that, that ha coincided with me a couple of things and identifying some public companies that do that and made a few investments. And, but then also just understanding that the, the world's going to change and it's going to figure out that you have to protect your safe, you know, the items you put in your safe deposit box, that's, that's how you protect assets, right? Yeah. And, I mean, ultimately the only thing we own is our data. Right. Whether your company's producing widgets or whatnot, and you have an inventory of stuff, <clears throat> the stuff doesn't matter as much as, as the data that surrounds that stuff. That's really where the value of every business is at. It's in those files that they're keeping. That's right. And when I, when I think of security, I think of four, four areas. And it sounds like it maps pretty well to that NIST document you were talking about. So I think of protecting the identity, Protecting, protecting the device. Yep. Protecting privacy. 
And by that, I think of the VPNs and uh, data tracking and things like that. Transmission then, implementation. Yeah, and then the, the and finally the data itself. Right. Right. So we, we get all we get all the way down there, but I think of this as layers, right? If I have not identified that you are who you say you are by multiple means, and in this instance, I love what Microsoft is doing because they're really broaden that and to say. Is this a time you usually log in? Are you in that usual place where you log in from? Right. You know, so they're adding that. It's like not just your username and password. They got a little profile built around you to say, yeah, that's not only does this guy have the username and password of Ben, but he's he's doing all the usual Ben things. So we're a little more confident that right. it's actually Ben. And, you know, the same deal with the device, right? Who's logged into that device? Is it the usual person that logs into that device? You know, and... Of course, there's the encryption of the device so that if it gets stolen, it's useless to the thief anyway. And then the, the privacy stuff, I have a little VPN that I client that I used. It's, it's an implementation of OpenVPN, but um, you know, if I am out of my office, it encrypts my data till it gets to my office and a network that I trust. And then it adopt, you know, then my transmissions adopt the policies of the office and go out from there. Right. right. So, so I can be someplace where I maybe don't trust. I mean, power went out here for five days and me and everybody else went up to Panera to try to get some work done. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know those people. I don't know that network. So, you know, I flip on my, my VPN that and all that VPN does is shoot my data back 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 to the back to the office which i had a little um thing on to to enable it but it was tricky to get that done but you know this is so common now that people are in places that they do not trust and i think right. that's an area that that's that is an area that is difficult for the firewall to manage because the firewall's back at the office but i think it is something that company like calyptics can do you know, that that's a way that that security has to evolve in the way that these devices have to evolve, not just from being edge devices, but getting their arms around where all the people are now. Right. Right. And, you well, know, it, keeping, it them, back keeping to, them under that shelter. Go back to the notion of how easy is it for a bad guy to rent a server at a data center in the United States? spin up a tour node, bounce through it, mm -hmm. use whatever he wants to, to try to connect to a small business, you know, system that's publicly exposed, whether or not it's logging into a firewall or connecting by way of a VPN or Citrix or going to a server or system that's been exposed. Uh, the, the only thing we know is that there's uncertainty and that the security tools we implement are an effort to elevate our certainty. They will not eliminate the uncertainty. And it's important that we all recognize that even multi-factor, even two-factor from a, a token on my phone, all of that means is I've got a secret in an app on my phone, typically using a time-based protocol to give me a six-digit number because the system I'm logging into has the same secret. So it'll generate the same six digit number. 
Mm-hmm. If somebody steals my phone or work, you know, or steals the app or steals the secret embedded or takes a screenshot when I get the QR code, I mean, it's just it's just a key and it's not a perfect and you know entirely uh, per- perfect key. And so adding these added, where's he coming from? What time of day is it? How long has he been connected? How much data has he extracted? Mm-hmm. You know, how much, po- you know, and oh, by the way, can he only get to the one system that he's permitted to get to? And understanding those, that there are, there's no ability to eliminate all uncertainty and not over trusting these tools is really important. Uh, because if you do, then you're setting yourself up for set the old world of set and forget, right? Right. Yep. And if yep. you want to monitor your money, I, I love this example by analogy, but if you want to keep track of your money, you look at every transaction in and out of your bank account. You have 100% visibility, whether it's one penny or a million. And at the end of the day, years ago, one of our developers, he's like, Ben, at the highest level, every data session is monitored in or out. And in that, in those worlds, if something happens that's not supposed to happen, the alarms go off, right? So we have to move more towards that monitoring and being able to, to control the asset, the money, the data, mm-hmm. right? Access to it and transmission of it. Yep. I don't know if it's still true, but, uh, but for years, the most common bank theft was $2. from your account, $2 from my account, $2 from everybody in my neighborhood's account, $2 from everybody in the state's account adds up. And it's, you know, it's just just people, people, like you said, they've got the bank statement that shows them every transaction. But if you don't look at it, there goes $2. Right. And, you know, if if you're the, if you're the criminal, you, you just you hit up hundreds of thousands of two dollar transactions. Nobody bets an eye. You know this is before we have this. This is this is before there was two factor authentication. It pretty much started happening as soon as remote banking occurred. Right. It's like get their passwords. I'm just going to steal two dollars from you. Who's going to chase me down for two dollars? Right. No, that's, that's... <laughs> Nobody. No. No law enforcement agency is going to be like. So it'd be on the phone. So, sir, you're saying you lost two dollars out of your bank account, and you want yes. me to do what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they pay me twelve dollars an hour, fifty dollars an hour, or whatever the number is. And it's like, that's right. It's 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 a cost benefit, right? So, yeah. but but that's yeah. where that go back to the ransomware world, right? Where the threat to our small businesses is now, it's not two dollars. It's unknown. Mm-hmm. We have to do more. You know why those? I suspect those numbers are going up in the ransoms is because it's actually getting harder for them. So we are, I think we are making some impact. You know, when ransomware first occurred, the ransom was like three hundred bucks, right. and then it was five hundred bucks, and then it was a few thousand dollars, and now we're into tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars if they get a big enough fish on the line. Yep. Uh, so in my mind, I think that that they're either looking for the, the big hit or it may actually be getting harder for them to do, to do the work. So, 
Well, one of the one of the interesting things that I think is this the, the understanding of the challenges that the bad guy has to go through to get you, right? First, they have to find you. Then they have to get in, exploit you. They got to get out. I mean, and they got to turn it into money or something worthwhile, right? Yeah. And as defenders, we just need to beat them at one stage. And so a big part of that is stopping their reconnaissance. If they can't I, see your system. I got to interrupt you right there because you just yeah. said something really important because you just said the opposite of what we always hear. They were like, well, the, you know, as the good guys, I have to be right every time and they only have to be right once. And then, then they're in. And I'm like, but you just said they have a lot of steps they have to go to. And if we thwart them at any one of those steps, then we have raised the cost of entry and they're likely to go away. And, you know, I would always tell my clients, you know, they would be like, well, you know, why do I really need this $3,000 firewall? And they're like, yeah, you really do. Yeah. You're a five person company. You do need this $3,000 firewall because you're making, you know, three quarters million dollars out of your five person company. This is 3000 bucks to protect it. That's, that's a no brainer when you, when you, explain it to them that way. And I said, this is going to, we're going to help you not be the low hanging fruit. You don't want to be the one that's easy to pick. That's exactly right. And it, that's economics though, right? It's, it's making it more <laughs> challenging. It goes back to that. Yeah, and, it does. Totally. And, and it's doing the defense effectively and economically. And the, the other day I got up, I woke up and, and this is something that may resonate with you. And the three tenets of security are confidentiality and integrity and availability. And those are all important. But what we've learned small businesses, it's availability at all costs, right? And it's that whether my, not I know the cost that I've created for myself by poking the hole or whether or not it's the cost to somebody else by leaving a machine in my environment that's infected, that's trying to hack somebody else. It's, it's economics, it's unknown cost, it's tr transference of cost, but that notion that availability at all cost, that's a real challenge. And that's, that's part of the transition and, um, and sort of helping people focus that when things aren't available, it might be for a reason, right? I mean, yeah. remember when people got put on blacklist and they couldn't send email to anybody? Right. Yep. That yeah, was a bad problem. thing, right? I mean, right. Yeah. It highlighted that there's a problem out there somewhere that needs to be taken care of. And that's so you definitely have to be able to communicate that to your clients as right. a, an IT service provider that this is happening for a reason. You're blocked for a reason. You know, we have geographic blocks in our, our, our firewalls. You can't log in if you're not in the right country. And you know, people go on vacation and they, they know we have told them this information and they'll go on vacation. And then, you know, we'll get the frantic email from somebody else in the company telling us that, you know, the, the owner's on vacation at such and such a place. And we'll have to verify that. And we'll be like, well, you know, we, we did have this conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, if you go out of the country, you need to tell us, we'll enable that country temporarily for that week. And then, then we'll, we'll disable it again because right. we want to make the world a smaller, safer place. And so it's effective. Yeah. So let's wrap up by answering a question that somebody asked in 2001, right? 
that's that's so, now it's still practicing law. So yeah, was, I pulled this yeah. out of the uh, the way internet wayback machine. And if you don't know the wayback machine, mm-hmm. it's a internet archive. They do great work. They could use your donation, a couple of bucks. It's well worth it. They archive the internet, the whole internet, <clears throat> and uh, it allows us to go back and see what was going on. So, so I went back into the old, the old SBS Yahoo list in 2001 and said, you know, all right, what were people asking? And so Rebecca in 2001 says, we are using IMC, which is the chat protocol, and POP3 connector in our server here to check email accounts through an ISP. Then I think I'm pretty much already maintaining Exchange server as a real email server. How different would it be to get to get the company that's already hosting our web domain to add an MX and A record and get the mail sent directly here? Would it be easier, especially if we're already at 17 different email addresses or would it be a far less headache for me just to leave it as is? What are the benefits? <clears throat> so this is somebody who's looking for moving from pop mail into an actual exchange server. And uh, I got the reply to that too, but what do you, what vision of hindsight, if you're gonna sell somebody, cause this actually still happens today, 20 years later, people are using public email addresses. And the way I got my clients off of them back in this time frame, as I would say to them, because Yahoo was the big email. Everybody had these Yahoo addresses. And I would say, you know, we need to get you an actual email domain and start using a real email server. And it'd be like, why this Yahoo is working fine. I'm like, yeah, but everybody looks at that and says, who is this Yahoo? (laughs) (laughs) They they, want to add trust, right? So what do you think? Should Rebecca have implemented that exchange server back in 2001? So moving from a POP uh, implementation to uh, an, an SMTP yep. in-house exchange server, I, you know, in the, you know, that's a world where there was no O365, right? It was, if you want email, either, you know, find an external provider or, or host your own mail server. Uh, I, I can, I'll put it in this text, I, context. I, I can remember a day that I had my access enforcer at home and I had a, a wireless access point. We had an open uh, segment. And I just ran mail filtering on our firewall for giggles. And our neighbor would happen to connect to our wireless because it was open and downloaded their email from their pop server. I got a copy of every email that they just downloaded. through <laughs> Our pop delivery. And so, you know, she... In that implementation, the way POP was in, implemented is there was no privacy. You know, you're, that, that what you're doing there is, is basically batching the data and delivering this email in batches unencrypted. And so by moving to SMTP in the Exchange server, uh, she was able to create the, the opportunity to authenticate, the, I believe, the users into that and also uh, secure the transmission of the data. So that would be, you know, a good move at that time for certain, in my opinion. All right. It's a very good security guy uh, take on that. So Sharon answered this question, a really lengthy reply, which I'm not going to repeat. But the, the gist of it is it was warning Rebecca about 
server stability issues, the need to maintain that server and to make sure that it's not behaving as an open relay. Because that was like the only security problem back in 2001 is your exchange server and open relay or not, right? <laughs> right, and then you got put on the blacklist, right? Because yeah. you, you were a spammer then. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, so. so it's 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 the, the mentality there was, there was a security concern. Yeah. But it was a lack of understanding of the security on the other side. There was and, no understanding and, of that. Yeah. <laughs> there was no, there was no understanding. There was, this was like, you know, uh, this would have fit on an eight, eight by 11 sheet of paper, this reply and not a single mention over the improvements of security, but more about warning or if you go down that route, you got to maintain that exchange server and you make sure you're not an open relay and you've got to have a whole bunch of work to do. And uh, that was the, that was the mentality back then. Nobody was like, oh yeah, it's going to, it's like your response gives do more security. That's a hindsight viewpoint and a good one. <laughs> All right. That's hey, a ben, good thanks exercise for, though, because I, I mean, I yeah. think in looking at the way we've approached things in the past, what were the impediments to moving to what today we would clearly view as a major improvement, right? And so I think I, you know, my takeaway on that is uh, investigate the, you know, the real benefits and challenges on each side. Make sure you understand where you really are versus where you're really going. And, you know, that's a part of the process. Yep. Well, hey, Ben, thanks for joining me today and having this conversation. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, I really appreciate the invitation and the chance to update uh, the community. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't share with you that the early entrenchment with the community uh, and the SMB community that we got through you and the other members um, is one of the reasons we, we named our new feature Community Shield, because the value of the community coming together is what we need to prevail in the cyber challenges that we face. And that's coming together with the tools and the integrity, the candor and the humility that we need to make it better. And, uh, and I think we'll do that. And so I wanna thank you for the years of support and encouragement and the opportunity to reconnect. Well, thanks, Ben. Thank you for tuning in to the SMB Community Podcast. If you found this useful, interesting, or fun, please subscribe, share with your friends, and give us a thumbs up on your favorite social media. Please check out the show notes at smbcommunitypodcast.com and give us your feedback.